Hey, Mike. Hey, Caleb. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I have an Archangel. It is oh. a delicious gin and Aperol cocktail with some muddled cucumber. And uh, since we're going to be talking about security and hacking and stuff, I figured Archangel sounded like a, a decent sort of hacker name, at least if this was a 90s cyberpunk movie. Nice. How about you? What are you drinking? I am just having some Cabernet Sauvignon, and uh, I think it's the Barefoot wine. So Barefoot? Like, like an $8 wine or something like that. <laughs> That's so, not a California wine. What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. I, I just saw it on an end cap, and I was... You're going to get kicked out of the state. I was consumerized. <laughs> so tonight, I was thinking we could talk a bit more on uh, sort of how Tesla makes self-driving cars possible from a software point of view okay and dig into sort of what happens to the car when tesla says hey we've got an update how do they get that to the car that the car can even improve itself is really unique to tesla and then what are the implications um hopefully we'll get to tonight maybe not of the uh, security and sort of government surveillance of having cars be so much more uh, like computers and smartphones and that they can connect to the internet and uh, report back. Sounds good. Sounds like a, a logical uh, finale to our autopilot miniseries we've had going on here. I know. We could we could release it as a PBS miniseries of some sort, <laughs> four or five episodes. Excellent. So um, I guess the first, first thing is really um, that Tesla has described publicly that the vehicles have already driven over 100 million miles with autopilot on. And that's, you know, drastically more than Google has uh, driven in their vehicles, even with simulated miles. And that the more staggering number is that cars with autopilot hardware have driven over 780 million miles. And so almost a billion miles have been driven with cars with autopilot. And so all that data Tesla is actually collecting and going to be using it to improve. And uh, we know that because Elon Musk shared when they introduced autopilot, a really good quote of sort of what's happening here and what's important. So I'll just quote him directly. Um, the whole Tesla fleet operates as a network. When one car learns something, the whole fleet learns something. Uploading data to the central server where it can be collected, do system analysis, and then feed back into the other cars. That's the next level and far beyond where other car companies are. Any car company that doesn't do this uh, will not have the ability to do autonomous driving. And so, you know, just sort of directly from the CEO, really trying to <laughs> hammer home how important it is that uh, not only does Tesla ship with autopilot, but it uses the data to improve and every vehicle is actually participating like a big, uh, big network. That is pretty cool. Um, and as an aside, I, I don't want to speak for the entire audience, but I, I would appreciate if maybe you could do the accent next time too, when you, when you do Musk quotes. I think we'll have to be a little bit uh, further along in our cocktail journey <laughs> for that to happen. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so I think the, the important thing is how does Tesla do this? And not from a software engineering point of view, but that there's sort of some assumptions about the vehicle that Tesla can take for granted now that they've built in. And the, the two big things that are really critical are that the cars have connectivity. So every Tesla Model S and beyond can connect to the internet 
both wirelessly with a 3G or LTE connection. So similar to the modem that is inside of your smartphone, it can connect to the internet wherever it is, uh, as well as Wi-Fi. So when you're at home and in your garage, if there's access to Wi-Fi, it can connect over Wi-Fi. So that's part number one, the ability to connect to the internet and send and receive data. Really, really important. And then the second is that the Teslas can actually update their software. So similar to the way that you would update your Android or iPhone, um, both the apps on the device as well as the actual software operating systems, the Tesla can update its uh, software and firmware. And that is unique to Tesla. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of why that is. But those are sort of the two building blocks separate from the sensors and the car itself that allow that fleet network to, to happen. And so I wanted to sort of dig into those two components and their history in Teslas and how they sort of play into the ability for autopilot to work. Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. It's it's pretty fascinating that there are, I mean, it's essentially a, a computer with a motor attached to it. I guess there's the uh, there's a Alan Cooper book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, which is a, a famous uh, product design book here, in at least in Silicon Valley. And there's a, a rather uh, wonderful formulation in it that says anything plus computer equals computer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is to say that as soon as you start adding these computer features to anything, it just becomes a, you know, it's no longer just a hammer. It's now a computer that can bang a nail in, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the famous phrases from uh, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Mark Andreessen, the creator of Netscape, and now a big uh, VC is sort of this idea that software eats the world. And uh, certainly in the, in the context of autopilot and Tesla, software eats the car um, is something that Tesla is betting on very big. And yeah, exactly to your point, the, you know, the Tesla is just is a roving computer and, um, you know, from and, and smartphone, basically, which is, you know, now the modern computer. Uh, every Tesla originally, every Model S shipped with a 3G modem built in. So if you remember the iPhone 3G or, you know, some of the late Nokia's or Blackberries having 3G modems, they, they shipped in 2012 with that in there and both for consumer facing features like a web browser and Slacker radio but really for the ability to update the vehicle. And what's really cool is they've actually even upgraded that to LTE. So it's even faster radio modem, and they updated it in June of 2015, so pretty recently. And, and what's really interesting is Tesla isn't the only automaker adding these radios, and it's happening at such a fast rate that smartphone adoption in the US has started to slow. And so actually for the very first time in this the first quarter of 2016, there were more cars added to networks than there were new cell phones. So <laughs> 31% of uh, new, new subscribers were phones and 32% were cars. So it just tipped that there are more cars being added to cell phone networks than uh, phones from people. So it just sort of shows that it's starting to reach this tipping point where modems and cell phone connections being added in cars is becoming a real thing. Yeah, so it sounds like this is getting into what's called the Internet of Things here, where it's not necessarily devices that you're immediately using that are connecting to the Internet, but all the devices in your life are connecting on their own to the Internet and doing things outside of your control. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and also that I think there's been, at least for me personally, when I started seeing cars adding L, like LTE radios and they would, they positioned it, the consumers as Wi-Fi in the car, it <laughs> seemed really silly um, because I have my cell phone in my pocket. And so I think originally I kind of discounted the value of that. Well, you don't usually see them pitching features to the passengers of a car too, which is a little bit weird. Yeah, and so they had this very strong familial kind of pitch that, well, if you've got kids in the car, you probably want to have Wi-Fi. And they sort of were, it seemed to be doing it because it was possible, not because it was great. But from Tesla's point of view, they're doing it because it enables the car to get better with these software updates, which we'll talk about. But Well, ideally get better, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, as all, uh, everyone who's updated their iPhone uh, can, can usually realize there's some pluses and some minuses. But uh, what's interesting is that AT&T is the partner for Tesla, and they have a, a multi-year agreement in, the, in North America. In the UK, they use uh, Telefonica. Um, and so, you know, AT&T is actually the leader in this. They've decided sort of they want to do these Internet of Things connected vehicles. So over 8 million cars, just to give a sense of scale, are on the AT&T network. Wow, but Tesla has a very small number out of that, right? Yeah, like 100,000 or so. Yeah, okay, so it's mostly other manufacturers right now? It's mostly, yeah. Over 19 brands work with AT&T. So from Audi to BMW, Buick, Chevy, Infiniti, Porsche, Volkswagen, Jaguar, Land Rover, all are AT&T partners for um, cell connections for cars. Cool. Yeah, they, they work with a bunch of folks. So... That's like piece number one, um, that the Teslas have the ability to connect to the internet through their LTE with AT&T in the US and others. And what's nice is for the consumer, it's free. And so Tesla is paying the bill for this, similar to what Kindle does. So Amazon's Kindle e-reader, if you buy the 3G model, you don't have to pay any subscription fee for it. It's just sort of built into the economics of the device. And I think that's a really important piece as well, that uh, at least for Tesla, they don't do it as an upcharge or upsell. They bake it into the economics of the vehicle. Is that is that forever? I, I thought I remember during the test drive, the uh, co-pilot guy telling me that it was for the first N years or whatever. Yeah, I think it's for the first three or four years, um, but it, that's just for the LTE service. And then it, apparently it drops down to 3G forever if you don't up, pay to upgrade. Oh, okay. So there's a baseline, like, yeah, like the WhisperNet on the on the Kindle. Yeah, exactly. That's a, a 3G or Edge type connection and and very low data rate. And I think the other the other big thing is that they prioritize software updates. Um, it's jumping ahead a bit, but they they prioritize software updates for um, Wi-Fi so that they they try not to use that data since Tesla is certainly paying for the that data that's being used. So with that capability of the software of the uh, LTE modems and ability to download becomes well what do you what do you send and receive over that? So one of the things that uh, happened was as we talked about in the past the hardware for autopilot was shipping in vehicles for over a year before it was even uh, turned on. And so how did it get turned on? Well, it got turned on with what's called over-the-air software updates. And it's basically this idea that Tesla is writing new code, new software at their headquarters and testing it on new cars and, and validating that it works. And uh, they're ready to go. And from for the past history of vehicles, you would wait until the next model ships. So next year or maybe a few years from now, that software that your software engineers wrote would end up on a car that's going to ship in a year plus. 
Tesla has the ability to say, this is good. We're going to ship it out to X percentage of vehicles, make sure it's still good, and then flip the switch so that all of the vehicles will get presented in the morning with a little dialogue that says, hey, there's a software update for your Tesla. Tap here to install it now or tap here to schedule it for some other date. And that is a, a very new experience for people to think, I'm going to update my car's software. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know about you. I've never had that happen to me. No, no, my, my car doesn't even have Bluetooth. But it's interesting that how they're they're kind of taking in the software world, we've had a similar paradigm shift where we've gone from when software was bundled and sold on CDs, you had this idea of having to get to like a gold master where you everything had to be finalized and it was very much a, a process to get it because it was almost impossible to update once that CD shipped or or whatever medium you were shipping it on. And the transition to web-based software has has radically changed that where now you know you're you're shipping multiple times a day and you end up with a company like Facebook which you know has the infamous like move fast and break things uh, philosophy because the idea not that you actually want to break anything but it doesn't really matter because you can fix it quickly yeah absolutely and i think the other big thing for tesla is Coming in as a underdog in the automotive world, there's a lot of things that they like. There's just different stages, right? Where, especially even even for a, a lot of um, hardware companies, the hardware gets locked in faster than the software. Like you can always be improving the software up until the very last second, usually. And so, as a result, a lot of <laughs> folks do do that for better or worse, too. I mean, it, it can lead to a lot of sloppy, sloppy software development. Right. And so when you think about the context of a vehicle where the priorities are quite different than a Facebook in terms of safety and reliability and, and bugs, um, what it enables is the ability to ship new functionality and new features when they're ready and tested and possibly in smaller chunks than these big, massive releases of a new model year or trying to cobble together product or improvements from all sorts of other vendors into one release. So one example is that the very first software update for the Model S that happened in October of 2012 enabled three or four really big things. The first was supercharging. So they shipped the car with with the port for supercharging and the capability embedded in the hardware, but the software wasn't there to actually use it. So when they actually unveiled the superchargers and everything was ready, they pushed a software update and supercharging was available. The other one was uh, driver profiles. So the idea that a lot of luxury cars have where you know you're, you may have uh, a preference for where the mirrors are in the seat and your spouse or significant other might have a different preference, enabling that through software. And then the other big one we've, we've talked about a lot is the creep mode was actually one of the first software <laughs> updates for the Tesla, where they had been getting feedback from people that they thought it was very uh, odd that the vehicle, when they lifted their foot off the accelerator uh, or off the brake, the, the vehicle didn't actually creep forward and move since most people are used to automatic transmissions. So they added a feature that changed pretty dynamically the driving conditions for the Tesla in their very first software update. And so those features probably would have had to wait a year. And not only that, but all the people who had bought the car previously would never have access to those in the traditional automotive model. And so not only did they get the feature in the vehicle, but everyone who already had a Tesla, their car in that context just got a little bit better. And so they've just been doing that over and over again. I mean, they've, they've gone from uh, like, they do like an update every 60 days for minor updates and then a new big software update, kind of like the, the, uh, the major smartphones about every year. Um, and so that's how autopilot got turned on in the, in the 7.0 update. So yeah, just, just really 
powerful concept of being able to add both functionality and small bug fixes and improvements through the software updates, uh, taking a page from uh, the software world and the very, very likely the web world of pushing sort of incremental updates instead of super, super big batches. That's interesting. Have they had any, let's say, incidents as part of this software pushing? Has Have there been any problems with that? Because I guess one of the big things is if you brick a car, it's very difficult to do anything with it. Right. Like, it, you can't really drive it in if you, if you really brick it thoroughly. Yeah. So in doing some more research into the, the software best practices that they've employed, so some of the things we've learned have been that um, they will package up updates that have inert features in them. So basically in dark mode, like um, feature flagged, they will ship them out in updates and just basically run the software quietly and not actually have the feature enabled to make sure that it's working as designed. So they can sort of um, do the logging and all that without the feature actually being used by customers. So that's the first thing. The second thing that they do is they roll out to a, a very progressively small amount of people and then progressively increase the number of cars that are getting it. So it's been pretty well well reported that internal Tesla employees will test the version, the software updates for a while for internal validation. Oh, so they, they do like an internal beta test? of Internal beta testing, yeah. So Elon Musk, even before the autopilot shipped, was, was tweeting that he was using it in a beta form on his commutes. And so, yeah, I think the risk falls to the Tesla employees uh, using it on their own vehicles first. And then they can start installing it from service centers. So it doesn't have to be over the air. They can actually install it at the service center. And so in that controlled environment, they can ensure that it's working and roll back if it didn't work. And then once it's been validated, they can start rolling it out more broadly and make sure things are going well before they turn it on for, you know, flip the switch for everyone. And and even iOS does this, but um, they've had some issues and Tesla's had some issues where there have been some bugs and, and then they can issue just a new a new build. But I, 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 yeah, I couldn't find anything of, of a really tremendously bad update. So they've had a pretty good track record so far. That's good. That's good. They, but they've, I mean, they have very few models out there right now, too. It'll be interesting to see how this scales to once they get the Model 3 and whatever comes after the Model 3. Uh, the more uh, environments you have to support, the greater the chance for bugs is. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things in digging in was finding out that they go to the level that each individual software update is signed with the VIN number of the vehicle it's being delivered to so that they can ensure that the hardware that's in that vehicle is matched to the software update. So, you know, some cars have slightly different hardware because they do improve the hardware over time silently. So they already do have a lot more diversity than would meet the eye. And that's why people see so many different build numbers of the software running on their cars. So they have like the major version number right now, it's 7.1, but they're actually different builds. And I know you being an iOS developer, you know, there's different builds for the different, uh, uh, different model iPhones and iPads. And so there's a similar model for Tesla where each individual car is only getting the software that's relevant for the hardware for that particular vehicle. Well, it sounds like if, you're, if they're doing it to the VIN number too, it, it sounds pretty uh, customized, almost like when you buy a an ebook and in the header and footer it has like your name in there too like this this book printed for or published for yeah and i think the other the other reason for that is that it's also another layer of security where the car is expecting to have the software signed to its own vin number so you oh, can't definitely. just yeah. back you can't just sort of uh, install some other 
like, oh, let hey, torrent the latest version of the software. I want to <laughs> install it on my car and let it let it be installed. So, so I guess they're assuming that no one's modding their Teslas at this point, which I, I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit too. But this idea of being able to go down to your uh, third party performance shop and have uh, things done to your car is something that's pretty common. And if you have a system that's expecting the hardware to be in a certain state, that could cause some issues. Yeah, I mean, certainly the repairability and improvability of vehicles is drastically decreasing uh, from the purely mechanical days where if the two parts fit, then it'd probably be okay. And now, yeah, if you put in a new steering control, the software will say no. Like, <laughs> you're, not, you're not putting your car up on blocks in your front yard and, and working on it to, to make it win the drag race or whatever. No, not anymore. You're just waiting for a software update to give you 0.2 seconds faster, 0 to 60, which has also come in software updates is faster <laughs> acceleration, um, which is sort of pretty cool. And what's funny is the software update, I was looking at some screenshots of it. Uh, since uh, I don't have a Tesla and haven't gone through the update process, I wanted to see some videos of what it was like. And, you know, the iPhone process can maybe take 30 or 40 minutes and the, the updating your Tesla takes about the same amount of time, 45 minutes. And obviously you can't drive the car when the update's happening. So you, you need to make sure you're parked and not needing to go anywhere. But what was funny was the Model S has like 400 lights in it and 50 motors and like 52 different processors. So when it does the uh, software reboot uh, from an install, it actually like tests all those systems. So apparently people who sit in their car during their update can get kind of freaked out because like the horn will <laughs> honk and the lights will flash and everything in the car will seem like it's going nuts and like on the fritz. Um, but it's actually just testing everything before it actually lets you drive. So there's a, there's a whole install process that validates everything's still good. If you're old enough, that that's what it used to be like when when a PC would boot up. Do you, if you remember, you'd turn it on. Oh yeah, all the and then sounds. all of a sudden, like the the floppy drive would make a noise, and then the other floppy drive would make a noise, and then your CD-ROM drive would make a noise, and then your hard drive because it was just clearly going in a sequence yeah, and testing sequence. all the devices. Yeah, yeah. So so that they they do that as well to make sure everything's uh, good on that reboot. So. To that point, um, one of the things that car ma- other car makers are starting to do is start proclaiming and to the AT&T stat, like, well, we do software updates too because Tesla's gotten a lot of positive press for these software updates and, and, redu- and introducing new functionality uh, over the air for free and over time. Uh, basically, with their pitch being the car will get better from the moment you buy it on so you can feel comfortable buying a Tesla anytime. And... One of the things that was really interesting was that the, you know, the, the automotive industry has started to subdivide what the term over-the-air update really means. And so just to sort of go through what that means so that if someone says, hey, well, my BMW does software updates, you'll be prepared to say like, well, wh- they may not actually be doing nearly the same as a Tesla. So the first sort of category I think you people are familiar with is the idea of updating maps. So that's sort of the first level of software updates. Maps used to be updated over CDs uh, or DVDs. If you had (laughs) navigation in your luxury vehicle, you'd go to the service station and they'd give you a new set of CDs for 500 bucks or something. So BMWs, Audis, Teslas all have over-the-air updates for maps. And that's like, there's over 400,000 cars on the road today that have that ability. So still not a ton, but the projections are very high that that's going to reach like millions and millions of cars uh, very shortly. So Right, and that's just updating the the data that the mapping system uses. Yeah, yeah, more precisely. It's just like this street now exists um, and this street does not exist, um, just like the very little bit of map stuff. So barely keeping up with what, you know, 
nowhere near what Google Maps is updating is, but something. The second one, and I know you're going to chuckle, is this concept of updating <laughs> the infotainment applications. I love that word. Yeah, so the, the auto industry has this phrase, infotainment. So basically that little screen in between you and the passenger is considered the infotainment system. And it covers the GPS uh, map stuff, any of the music apps, the Bluetooth connectivity, and yeah, it's sort of informational stuff about the vehicle and settings as well as the entertainment, hence the portmanteau, I guess, of infotainment. Um, <laughs> so basically, back in the day, if you would go down to your, your, your shop and have them put an Alpine system in, that would essentially be the analog infotainment system. Exactly. Yes. The uh, little scrolling LCD upgrade from your uh, cassette deck. That, <laughs> that is the infotainment system. So, so that is another piece. And those are basically app updates. So, hey, the uh, Spotify app or Pandora app that's in my car uh, has a small update. Um, can they update that over the air? More and more manufacturers are now allowing those apps to be updated. And is that something that's happening in the background, or do you have to opt in for all of that, or do your apps just update on their own? Um, different different cars have different um, standards there, but a lot of them will do it over the air at night uh, without your without your like explicit action because it's more of a low yeah it's low level and most vehicles can run with the infotainment system rebooting one of the really important segregations is that the infotainment system in most cars is designed to be firewalled through software from the rest of the controls for the vehicle theoretically firewalled yeah so they try and design it so the infotainment system is an island and uh, that can be the more risky software um, so like Ford has their Microsoft Sync system, which has some apps and voice recognition. That is not connected to the power brakes in any meaningful way, uh, supposedly. <laughs> um, there's a giant asterisk attached to all of these statements. Yes. Yeah, so we'll get. So then there's like another one. Like there's just so many, but like there's one around the, a system called a telematic control unit. And that's basically the OnStar type systems that are in cars that control the GPS uh, that track the car. So those systems have their own software and some vehicles allow those to be updated as well. But the, the granddaddy and most important one and the one that's really special for Tesla is core electronic control units, which is shortened for the ECU. And so you see that term thrown around. That basically means that the software that's running on over 80 different subsystems in the car, ranging from the power brakes to the power steering, all of those little microchips and computer-controlled parts of the, of the system, windows, door locks, security systems. Not Microsoft Windows. No, no, no. The actual <laughs> windows and doors. All of those are also controlled by software in most modern vehicles. But those are usually never connected to over-the-air updates. Only right. Tesla is the only car I could find that actually allows you to update that software. So that's why Tesla can change the Falcon Wing door behaviors and the autopilot stuff and the creep mode when no other car maker is doing anything like that. And so that is a fundamental difference to Tesla's over-the-air updates. So uh, thanks for bearing with us for the past few minutes digging through all those. But that is the, <laughs> that is the bottom of the layer cake, as it were. And the thing that most car makers are deathly afraid to allow because they don't control those other systems nearly to the same degree that Tesla does. 
and they don't have a centralized computer. Tesla has a centralized Linux computer that's running uh, Ubuntu. It is? Yeah, it runs Ubuntu, <laughs> and uh, it's connected with Ethernet to the different systems. And uh, it's, so it's, it really is a Linux computer in the car managing these subsystems and running infotainment and, uh, and, and connecting to the Internet. So it sounds like this is, this is essentially like an industrial control network or, or I'm not exactly sure what the what the proper terminology is but there's a whole uh, subsystem of software and, and networks which it deals with industrial devices uh, like factories or or most famously uh, uh, people started hearing about it when this Stuxnet virus was uh, was released what was it a five years ago or something. Uh, yeah. And yeah, essentially was this uh, virus that infected the industrial control units of the uranium enrichment centrifuges of the Iranian nuclear program. I believe I might be getting out of my depth a little bit here, but I think that's still right. Yeah. Essentially it's a whole like different way of working these like devices that are kind of isolated and have their own protocols and stuff that they communicate with. Yeah. I mean, automotive, the automotive Connectivity is a special uh, networking system, um, the controller area network. It's shortened for CAN. And so, you know, if you connect your, you, you plug in the cable at home or at work to your Mac or PC, that's Ethernet, um, that sort of flat connector that you probably don't use very much since there's Wi-Fi now. But that is not what's in most vehicles. It's using a much older protocol that's from the, the late 90, early 90s. And What's tough is that so many of these vehicles and the the parts manufacturers are so distributed and move so slowly that for them, all these pieces have to operate together. And so it takes a lot of energy and momentum to change the way that the computer systems in these cars works because you have to get all of your other suppliers on board with allowing the software to be updated and for them to introduce these new protocols. So uh, Tesla's done a lot of work with their suppliers to actually modernize the infrastructure. And one of the things that I think is also underappreciated and will be more difficult for other car makers to actually do is to push the suppliers and their own software and engineering teams to see the value in improving these subsystems that customers don't see directly, but benefit from when the cars can be updated. Or as they might view it, if you just wake up and your car does not work in the morning. Yeah, I mean, you, you saw this uh, tweet from a guy who had a BMW that he just, it was sort of bricked, right? He couldn't do anything with it. Yeah, I think it was, it was operating in degraded mode. I don't know if that meant he had to commute to work at 20 miles an hour or, or what. But yeah, there was a, a warning or an error message, I guess, on his uh, display saying that, yeah, the, the update was not successful or, I don't know, some sort of horrifying message like that. Yeah, I mean, one of the benefits for regular automakers that is going to lead to this happening, aside from adding new features, which they probably won't do since they want to charge for new model years, is uh, the cost savings of maintenance and recalls. So if you have an issue with your car, most of the time you have to bring it into a service center. And that costs the you money and it costs the dealers money and it, and it costs the manufacturer's warranty cost money. So if you're under warranty, you know, you're not paying for that out of pocket, but someone's still paying for it. And that's the warranty cost. And so the IHS, which is a big automotive um, research firm, estimated that uh, the savings from over the year updates would be $2.7 billion in 2015, growing to 
$35 billion in 2022. So, you know, updating the navigation, the infotainment, all that is already what's doing some of the savings, but actually being able to patch the vehicles. And if there is a recall, like the Jeep recall, which happened with the security issue, <laughs> right now they have to wait to either call you back into the service center or pay to send out a USB key to you physically and then have you install it and you'll probably mess it up so you have to bring it to the service center anyways. So there's there was real benefit to the car manufacturers to doing this separate from just the consumer benefit. And so that's also one of the big reasons these lumbering automotive companies are starting to get with it is that they can save a lot of money on warranty, which goes straight to the bottom line because um, I doubt they're going to be dropping the price of the car. They'll just be saving money on warranty cost. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, as, as we get into the world of, of software and, and shipping software, that these are not companies that are experts or even experienced in uh, doing these sort of updates. And this there's uh, I, I guess we can put in a, a link into this article. We're going to start getting into security here, but there's a, a great article that I think every technology person should have to read annually or, or even quarterly um, on Medium called Everything is Broken. And it just pointing out that the systems that we have are so flawed and they're so complex. No one person can know how every part of a, any software system that we have works. And that just means that there's going to be vulnerabilities everywhere. And it's just a question of finding them. And uh, once you start getting companies like these car manufacturers involved in, in software and software updates, then you, you open up this whole Pandora's box of problems where there's going to be bad updates. There are going to be people forging updates. Like, how will you know if, if you're not being like targeted with a spear phishing attack or trying to get someone to put some something on your car? There's it's an entire uh, entire world of problems that I probably not worth getting into right now. Maybe we can save that for for another episode. Yeah, I think there's a lot to dig in there, especially with uh, with your background being a software engineer. There's going to be a lot to talk about on on the security side and sort of. I've got a lot of skepticism to air. <laughs> yeah, asking you a bunch about that, but I think maybe the the big thing to to end tonight's episode with is that. Um, it's been estimated that for a 2016 model year car, there's over 100 million lines of code in that vehicle. I just You can't see it right now, but I just shuddered. Yeah, and that's a lot, a lot of code. It's probably not all written by the same team, which has its own massive challenges. And automotive companies are not known for attracting the most uh software engineers um <laughs> most software engineers i know are thinking about going to google or facebook or apple or other places that usually uh, gm is not number one on their list for where they want to go work as a software engineer so uh, no well and their business incentives are, are geared towards selling the next model year too not not you know making sure that the previous model year or years is up to snuff yeah so i i feel like the um the, the big fundamental challenge for all these manufacturers going forward is that and we've talked about, especially from our vantage point of, of technology, is as these cars become more and more computer-like and computer-ish, they are going to become more and more susceptible to the challenges of writing good software. And those seams and errors are going to show through at a much greater rate than ever before. And so folks like Tesla and eventually Apple and others who come 
from a much deeper history and expertise with software will continue to shine. And so I think maybe next week we can talk a bit more about what does it mean when this is a, a roving computer and uh, it is the most dangerous computer you will ever exhibit and be in and uh, there'll be more and more incentive for people to try and hack it and cause problems. It's a very heavy uh, guided missile for hackers too if you want to start deploying them as, as I guess, bombs or, or, or projectiles. Yeah, absolutely. So on that nice note, we'll uh, wrap it up for today. <laughs> oh, we're going to end there. That's unfortunate. Yes, we'll, we'll get into that next week. So if you guys have any uh, thoughts, any of the listeners have thoughts on things they want to have us uh, try and dig into for uh, for next week on um, security and, and hacking and uh, surveillance with vehicles and Tesla in particular, um, we'd love to take a look at any of that information. So where could they let us know about that, Mike? Hit us up at our, our subreddit at r slash the Tesla show or tweet us at the Tesla show. We look forward to hearing from you. Yeah. It's been great hearing from hearing from people, uh, some positive, some negative, all very interesting. Yeah, it's been great. I've been very uh, excited to, to hear the feedback and um, yeah, please let us know. And we certainly read all of it, even if we don't respond to every every piece of feedback, we're certainly seeing all of it. So we will see it if you write it on one of those two places. So Indeed. With that, enjoy the rest of your night, Mike, and talk to you next week. Cool. Cheers.